Hey, everybody. It's good to see all you guys again. Um, so we are doing something a little bit different tonight in terms of spending time in the Word. Normally, over the past few weeks, uh, it's been like a typical large group where I've just been teaching, you know, giving a talk, uh, directing you to the text, and then we break up in small groups. But tonight, we have a little bit of a treat because you don't have to listen to just me talk for the next 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, tonight, we are going to do something different. And I am having, uh, I'm being joined by Sarah to talk about the text. Uh, and I want to explain why we're doing something different, uh, because this is intentional, this is really important. So disciple makers, uh, as a ministry, as your staff workers, our heart is to equip you guys as disciples and disciple makers, um, not just to teach the word of God, but to help you understand how to handle God's word on your own. Um, you know, when I was in college, the, the best thing that I learned when I was in college, the most uh, beneficial, long-lasting, um, foundational thing that I learned in, in my time in school was how to study the scriptures. And it wasn't at a Christian college. It was at a secular university like you guys, um, because people came alongside me and, and helped me see how to read the scriptures, how to understand them and apply them. Um, and, and I'm sure if you guys have been around our ministry for uh, you know, anytime at all, you know that, that we don't just talk about God's word. We want you to see how to understand God's word. Um, and so what we're, we're going to do tonight, Sarah and I are going to study the passage together. It's kind of going to be more like a panel discussion where you can, you know, kind of open up the curtain and sorry for the graphic, but you can see how the sausage is made a little bit. Um, but, but our hope is that even though we can't have interaction with 50 people tonight, that you would be fully engaged. So um, number one, if you haven't yet, either pull out the passage, print it out, get a pen, get ready to mark it up because we're gonna pull it up on the screen and, and show you our notes and our thoughts. Um, and also for those of you who are unfamiliar, just to give you a brief overview of how we study the scriptures, this is what we do. Um, it's probably familiar to, to some of you, most of you guys, but we spend time observing, asking what does the text say we spend time interpreting, asking what does it mean, and then we spend, spend time applying by asking the question, how can we respond? Um, so that's what we're going to do, and I'm, I'm pumped to have Sarah. For those of you who know Sarah, you know she's an awesome leader. Uh, she's a great teacher. Um, also, she's going to showcase a little bit of her expertise in history as well, because this passage will, will lend itself to it. Um, and one last uh, housekeeping item, it's probably going to be best for you to, to click speaker view. So you can see both of us going back and forth as opposed to gallery view, but I can't control that. So uh, you do what you want. So um, let me read the passage and then Sarah and I are going to talk about it. I'll pull it up on your screens as well uh, in case you don't have it. So here's Jonah chapter three. Um, we have been trudging through. We got two more chapters and uh, this is a pretty exciting one. So. Here's Jonah chapter three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. All right. Sarah, where are you at? Here I am. Cool. All right. People, if you have your passage, you have your, your pens, let's get into it. Uh, Sarah, why don't you just start us off? What, what stood out to you about Jonah chapter 3? Yeah, I think what immediately stands out is verse 1. The word of the Lord came a second time, saying, arise. You know, there's almost, uh, if you look at 1, 1, and 2, and 3, 1, and 2, it's almost word for word. It's very similar, and so there's a sense of, like, you know, almost the Lord minimizing the whole like traumatic fish swallowing vomiting experience that Jonah has just gone through. And he's like, okay, second time, let's try this again. Right. Yeah, no, no PTSD time for Jonah. Yeah, yes. it's, almost, it's almost like this could have been verse two of the entire book. Like we'd, we could have skipped the whole ship scene, shipped the whole fish scene. Um, yeah, it's almost word for word, one and two from the beginning. But this time we see, you know, arise, Jonah does arose and went to Nineveh. So he does actually listen this time. Yeah. Yep. And along with that, just like, since you pointed out arise and arose, you see a similar, the same exact word used to describe the king of Nineveh, which I'm sure we'll get into, but just noticing that repeated word. Yeah. One thing that I found helpful in terms of understanding the passage is the structure of it. Um, I think most Bibles probably break it up the way that this is broken up. So one through five, six through nine, and then 10, which makes sense. Like one, the word of the Lord, six, the word reached the king. Um, 10 is kind of, you know, the summary statement, how God responds. But actually, as I've been studying this a little bit more, I would break it up uh, one through four is kind of Jonah's response, which is good this time. And then five all the way down through nine seems to be Nineveh's response. And then 10 is God's response. So you kind of have like the three sections, Jonah responds, Nineveh responds, and God responds to all of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, Something that, that also stands out to me is sort of the difference between Jonah's response and Nineveh's response. So Jonah, this is the second time. And even when he goes, like, I don't know the tone of voice that he cried this out. It says he called out. But uh, he, he even Jonah, like, he's not necessarily offering them grace. He's saying, like, you're going to be punished. Uh, and he just says what God says to say. But then Nineveh actually responds very urgently. Like, there just seems to be a difference that the king himself 
gets up from his throne, you know, ancient kings don't really do that, takes off his robe and, and you know, like the, that he issues this proclamation. So he makes the whole nation respond very urgently and very um, quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, as you say that, it's funny comparing Jonah's sermon with the king's sermon. Like Jonah's sermon is like, what, like seven or eight words in verse four. Uh, <laughs> the king has a much more lengthy you know, direction to the whole people of Nineveh. It's just an interesting comparison. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, another repeated word I noticed is the word turn. Um, mm-hmm and relent, which is sort of similar, but you see yeah, it. Um, you see it turn from his evil way in verse eight and turn and relent in verse nine mm-hmm. and 10 turn and relent happens again. Right, yeah. Actually, turn comes up twice there. In nine. Yeah, yeah. Turned. Mm-hmm. Relented, you said. Yeah. Just in terms of uh, repeated words, I saw um, two related ideas. Um, so the word in verse one, and that comes up throughout the whole passage in terms of a noun. So the message, verse two, uh, the word again, verse three, then verse six, the word, and then you have the, the king issuing a proclamation, and then he says decree, but then there's a lot of like a sim, uh, related verb form, call out, uh, this comes up a bunch, so you can help me out, um, and there's different calling out, so Jonah's calling out, the people are calling um, the king is calling them to call out mightily to God. Is that all of them? Yeah. It's a very active passage. It's very chatty and it's very active. Chatty. Yeah. Chatty in a good way. Yeah. Anything else stand out observation wise? Uh, just as something that's interesting, the sackcloth and ashes, like I think what the king does. Um, I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what does that mean, or maybe we can talk about that now, but um, that he seems to go through this ritual involving sackcloth. That's a repeated term. Mm-hmm. I mean, why don't we? Like what, that's kind of odd. Like people are changing clothes in response to the sermon. I don't think that's a normal reaction on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Like what is, what is sackcloth? Yeah, it's basically like, I don't know if you almost picture like burlap today, like kind of rough unwoven cloth, something that you wouldn't normally wear, but it's, it's the idea of humbling yourself. And so putting on this sackcloth and sitting in, in ashes, you know, that's like, you know, leftover from a fire, you know, the cold ashes, the soot, the dust and, and saying like, I am humbling and lowering myself even to the dust. And so it's something you see all throughout the Bible. It is a, it's, a, it's an outward physical symbol of repenting and humbling. So even that, that he takes off his royal robe and he covers himself in this rough, coarse, dirty, uh, humble robe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like what you said there. It's, it's an outward sign 
of an inward reality, which I think seems foreign to us. Like there's not a lot of things that we do, but I think fasting is something that thankfully is still something that Christians do. Baptism, kind of that similar, it's a, it's a outward sign of an inward reality. Um, yeah. So um, we ordered through Amazon Prime, a bunch of burlap sacks to be going to everyone. It should be <laughs> right about now. No, we did not. <laughs> One thing um, that I noticed that stands out, we kind of mentioned this, but um, I think just the contrast that this chapter has just for the first couple verses of the whole book. So we mentioned it with Jonah, but I think it's really interesting the way the king responds. He arises, um, which is similar to what Jonah does here, what Jonah did in chapter one. But the first thing that Jonah did, he arose and remember he went down, went down to Joppa, down to the ship, down for a nap. Um, the king arises and he goes down, but he goes down into, like you said, this humble repentance, which I think this would really surprise. I mean, it should surprise us, but especially the readers, like the king of Nineveh, is humbling himself immediately like this would be like what <laughs> so this is a huge shock especially contrast with what we've already read in chapter one yeah well and i think it's because they realize the message jonah's just the messenger i think verse five really stands out to me the people of nineveh believed god you know that it's you know it's they see that some whatever i mean however jonah said it however the the spirit is the one who is working. Jonah shows up and speaks, but God is the one who has gone after these people and they believe him and they recognize him. Yeah. That, and that's humbling as a teacher, preacher. This is what you want, but it's also like, but don't, don't you want, like, I, I imagine Jonah will want some credit, but it's going straight to the Lord. Like he's the one who's being believed. Another repeated one, and this could be like an obvious one that we could look over, but Nineveh comes up over and over again, um, which makes sense because it's the place that he is, but it almost seems like the author, similar to chapter one, when he kept saying he went to Tarshish, he went to Tarshish, like the, the furthest away from Nineveh he could get. It's like the author is like Nineveh. Just so you, just so you know, we're talking about Nineveh here. Um, yeah, it's like really attention grabbing. Yeah, I think uh, any part of good Bible study is to just ask a lot of questions. So I think one question that comes to my mind is uh, in verses seven and eight, he says uh, he wants all the people to repent, but then he says he doesn't want the beasts or the flocks. He wants them to fast too, and he wants them to be covered out in sackcloth. So like, I think the question is, why do the cows need to repent? <laughs> right. What did they do? So, yeah, but but I think uh, I think the author is pointing out, um, you know, even where does it say in verse five that they all did this from the greatest to the least of them, that they recognized their their evil uh, and their sin with such an urgency that they they want to leave no stone unturned in their repentance. They want it to be a full, complete national. We've done wrong against the Lord. Uh, and so I don't actually think the cows necessarily needed to repent, but there's, there's this idea that 
um, this is not going to be a half-hearted following of God, you know, which is, which is different from Jonah. You know, he's the prophet, he's the religious guy, but um, he's sort of half-hearting his whole way through this book. But mm -hmm. there is a wholehearted turn here among the people of, of Nineveh, of all places. Yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, that it's like exhaustive, like almost to a certain extent unnecessary. Like even your, yeah, your animals, like put them in burlap sacks too. I, I think along with that, like the, the urgency, um, in verse three and four, the journey, like the length of his journey is, is mentioned. So it's, it says a three days journey and only a day in do the people believe God? So not only is it exhaustive, like you're saying, like, let's, let's make sure we're covering all of our bases. It's like immediate, like Jonah didn't even get all, all the way through the city. So word was spreading. People were telling people the word reaches the king, like their, their repentance is immediate. Um, which again is a big deal, like the urgency. Yeah. Anything else about, just observing the text. I know we're asking a couple of questions. Yeah, I think, I think that pretty much covers all the, the things that, that really stick out to me in terms of, I guess maybe the only observation is, is verse nine, where it says, um, well, I guess even one before, let us turn, let us cry out mightily to God. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may, may not tap, uh, perish. And then in 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them. So there's a very interesting, like God is really faithful to his deal. Like he, he warns them and they do repent. And so he doesn't, bring disaster. Uh, and so I think it's just interesting, even some of the, the language that, um, that God chooses to do this, you know, not that they strong arm God into doing this, but that he made a promise and he keeps it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think maybe to, to just kind of summarize or kind of get the full picture, the, the key statements, I think of what each character does. So um, I think right here, Jonah calls out, uh, Nineveh believes God. And then, I mean, there's a few different places, but Nineveh turns from their evil. And then as you just pointed out, God sees, so he got, God saw and God relented. I feel like that's like the narrative. So Jonah preaches, Nineveh believes, repents. God sees and he relents. Um, I feel like that's like the, the core of what's going on. So, so here's a question. If that's kind of, it seems like the emphasis, the mood is, is this urgent repentance. Even Jonah's repenting, like even though it's half-hearted, he's turned from running away and he's preaching now. Um, why is it such a big deal that this is Nineveh? And why is the author reminding us Nineveh, Nineveh, Nineveh? Yeah. You can, you can pull out your, uh, you can nerd out a little bit with the history if you want. Yeah, totally. Uh, not that I ever need permission to do so. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, yeah. So 
over and over again, he says Nineveh, even in 1-1, he says, go to that great city. There's a sense that on the ancient landscape, Nineveh is notorious, you know, even in the way that if I say ISIS, that means something to you. If I, you know, if I were to say that, um, and, and Nineveh, it's the capital of the Assyrian empire at this time. And in terms of, of ancient empires, uh, Assyria does actually sort of stand head and shoulders above some of the of the ancient empires in terms of just sheer cruel brutality. Um, they actually invented terrorism. They are the first people in the ancient world that we can find that pioneered psychological terrorism. So um, basically they got very good at winning without a fight because they were that scary. And, and what they would do I considered actually reading some of their accounts, but I, I think they're actually too graphic. So what they would often do is they would mutilate their defeated warriors, even civilians, things like blinding and cutting off limbs. And, and they wanted to leave their, their defeated enemies alive, but with horrifying mutilation to leave physical marks of terror that Assyria has been here. Don't mess with us. Um, they preferred... They preferred really slow torture. Um, I mean, they would often burn people alive. They would do um, flaying alive. Um, and they were, they were just truly, truly terrifying. And, and I actually, I want Keith to pull up a picture of, of the gates of Nineveh. So these are the gates, uh, and this this picture was actually taken in 2016. So this is how well they have stood. These are most likely that these are the actual gates that that Jonah would have walked through. Um, they've lasted all the way up until 2016. ISIS actually bombed them, uh, so that you can't see them anymore. But they, this is how well it was it was holding up. And and what they would do is on these gates, on these walls, you can see there's kind of the ramp where the grass is growing, where you would walk up into the city. And on these walls, they would hang vines where they would tie the body parts of their defeated enemies, um, basically as, as a warning. Yeah, yeah, these people are horrifying as, as a warning. Uh, and, and so you can imagine Jonah walking up and, and you can really imagine both the very literal and spiritual stink of these people's evil as you're as he's walking into into the city um so this was a uniquely scary place in the ancient world oh, that's why we have to give you permission <laughs> we're all terrified now but okay so here's a question i really appreciate that because i would assume i think we can assume that jonah knew that this is how bad Nineveh was. Maybe, I mean, we don't know if he knew all the details, but you know, in verse uh, verse eight, so evil and violence, and then evil again down here. I mean, it's it's mentioned, but why would it? Like, it almost seems like the author isn't really going into detail, like. I know this is kind of speculation, but what do you think? Like, why wouldn't the author really, really showcase how horrible these people were? Because that's, that's terrifying stuff. Yeah, this is the shocking and surprising and honestly challenging part about Jonah. Um, on the one hand, I think contemporary readers wouldn't have needed explanation. 
But on the other hand, the Lord is putting the Ninevites on an even playing field with Jonah. I think we often believe that there is sort of uh, a hierarchy of, of sin and less sin. And, and certainly there is some sin is far more destructive than others, you know, physically that we can see tangibly. But on a spiritual level, God is saying that Jonah's evil is on the level of the Ninevites' evil. And I don't think that minimizes the Ninevites' evil. I think what would really shock and challenge the leader is to, the reader is to say, you're saying Jonah is as bad as these people too, that, that God sees these people, that these people on the even playing field. It, it really, it really um, brings home Romans. No one seeks God. No one has, is without sin, you know, those sorts of things. So I think that honestly, that's a really challenging part mm -hmm. of, of Jonah is that um, one, that God would forgive the Ninevites and go after them. But two, that, that, Jonah is being treated the same way on the same level as them. Yeah. Cause yeah, I appreciate you saying that. It, maybe it's a little bit of both. Like the reader would have known uh, Nineveh's evil, but also, I mean, that same word is used to describe Jonah's actions in chapter one evil. So yeah, it's not minimizing Jonah. It's, it's almost like uh, it's, or not minimi yeah, not minimizing Nineveh's evil. It's, elevating Jonah's view or, or the reader's view of all sin. Yeah, yeah, because the author could have explained it more if he wanted to. You know, for example, you get quite a bit of detail about how the Babylonians treated people in the Bible. There, there's quite a bit of detail about the Egyptians and how they treated their slaves. So I do think the author is purposely not going into some of the details, but also still bringing, this is Nineveh, this is Nineveh. Remember, this is Nineveh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm excited for next week because chapter four, and I've, I've read this story so many times, and I'm still challenged by chapter four because Jonah really wrestles with this reality, um, but this is just chapter three. So, <laughs> um, so I feel like we've, we have um, covered, you know, most of what's going on, even asked some really good questions, but just to wrap it up or kind of move towards a main point. Um, what do you feel like are the main principles or the, you know, summarizing kind of things that we've mentioned in order to understand what this passage is, is really about and why it was written? Yeah, yeah, you know, there's, there's not a lot explicit here, but I think there's so much we learn about the character of the Lord here that on the one hand, he is really just, and so he will punish sin and he will pour out his wrath and that would be deserved on evil, but also he's merciful mm -hmm. and that he will extend his mercy to those who will repent. And so, you know, in his divine justice and mercy, God, God does offer forgiveness and salvation, even our enemies. Mm -hmm. And also a sense that this life changing message has to be shared. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I appreciate the, there's two storylines in a sense going on that God is showing this mercy to Jonah. Like he could have just left Jonah in the ocean. Like, all right, I'm just going to get someone else to go to Nineveh, but he's, he's extending mercy to Jonah and he's extending mercy through Jonah. But it's also like you said, there's justice and there's wrath here. Um, I think we could assume that this is the message that God told Jonah to say. I mean, it's just, yeah, 
straight up wrath and, and justice, like the sort of thing that if you hear someone preaching on the corner of a sidewalk, you're like, don't want to associate yourself with them. But especially when you consider the background, um, you know, God will not let uh, evil go unpunished. Like he sees it. But at the same time, there's also mercy to be extended. So kind of bring that into a main point. I know you, I really appreciate what you said in terms of the, the main idea. Succinctly, what, what's the main idea of Jonah chapter three? God's wrath and mercy extend to all. And this must be proclaimed so hearers can repent and be saved. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> so God's wrath and mercy extend to all. So that, that's important. So his wrath extends to all because we're all evil. The, the religious rebel, Jonah, but also the wicked uh, enemy, Nineveh, but also his grace, his mercy extends to all. And this message needs to be proclaimed because repentance is the, really gets the highlight here that the message is proclaimed, but people repent, like they respond and they receive forgiveness because of God's mercy. So God's wrath and mercy extend to all. This must be proclaimed so hearers can repent and be saved. That's Jonah chapter three. Why don't we um, move into getting towards application so we can think about how does this apply to our lives. But one important part of Bible study for all you guys listening is when you get to a main idea of the passage to not jump too quickly um, to, to our lives immediately. So we're trying to understand it from the reader's perspective and they would have been surprised. They would have been like, Nineveh, are you serious? Um, but then we also don't want to forget the gospel because Jesus says that all of the scriptures point to him. So before we talk about this in our lives in these last couple minutes, um, Sarah, what are some gospel connections in Jonah chapter three, how does this point forward to Jesus and his work? Yeah, I think it shows that even in the Old Testament, God was always the king of all the nations. You know, there wasn't some sense that um, God is just king for the religious people and the Jews and, you know, forget everybody else. He's wrathful and will just destroy everybody else. You know, that, that actually he is extending mercy. Um, and then that, that carries into the New Testament where we do see the gospel is for everybody. Uh, and often it's religious people that have a hard time with that. Jesus actually talks about the men of Nineveh to the Pharisees. And he says in Matthew 12 to the Pharisees that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, the men of Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah, Jesus, is here. And so there's this realizing that um, the gospel is for everybody. And the gospel, you, you don't do anything bef like to earn or make position yourself to be in a better spot to receive the gospel. I know that a bunch of people watch Sight and Sounds Jesus show over Easter. And most, the, the thing that most people have pointed out to me as their favorite song is that he left the 99 when I was the one. And it's this scene where Jesus is with the disciples and he's going after a demon possessed Gentile probable pig farmer, which in the Jewish sense, in, sense is the triple unclean, don't go near that guy. He doesn't deserve God's favor. 
Uh, and the disciples say, why do we have to go after this guy? Like, we are scared of this guy. We don't want to go over it. Um, and they, Jesus says to them, you know, you didn't say that when you were the one, you know, you wanted me to come for you. We're going to go for him too. And then they sing this song about Jesus is the good shepherd who will leave the 99 to go after the one. And I think we just see God through Jonah, the imperfect messenger going after these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, I think that explicitly connects the passage that Jesus, when he says that all the scriptures point to him, he says that a huge part of that, the, the thrust of that in Luke 24, is that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So you see repentance, forgiveness, and all nations happening here in Jonah. And that's the storyline of the scriptures, uh, that this message of salvation, which is fulfilled in Jesus, needs to be brought to all the nations. Um, yeah. So what is this mean for us why don't we talk about application this idea of um justice and mercy extending to everyone but it needs to be preached so that people can repent and be saved um you know how do we start to apply this passage to, to our own lives today what are some thoughts you have yeah i have three pretty quick ones and then i think that you have a few too the three that i had were first to just be in awe of god you know that that you know, as Paul considers God's justice and mercy in Romans 9 through 11, which is like very theologically heavy section about God's character, he ends it with just like breaking out into song and being like, who is this God? You know, and so being in awe of God, that Jesus became sin for us, that he absorbed the curse that we deserve to bear, because it might be fairly obvious that Nineveh like deserved destruction, but got mercy. But this book says Joan is the same. You're the same. I'm the same. So being in awe of God, also be humble about your sin, especially if you tend to think that other people are more evil than you. You know, like I, I do fall in that category where I fall into that. Well, I'm not that person bad. And so I think a couple applications there being humble about your sin is do we, do you see the need to urgently repent? the way the Ninevites did, you know, wholehearted, don't leave anything unturned, or are you justifying yourself or minimizing your sin like Jonah? Um, so because being humble about your sin, Jonah, if you feel like you're one of the Ninevites that, you know, you've done too much bad for God to ever care about you or forgive you, you know, Jonah has good news. You're wrong. God will, God is still for you. But if you're a religious person, this might really unsettle you and you might have to wrestle with your own sin. Uh, so be in awe of God, be humble about your sin. And third, be speaking about God's mercy. You know, who have you thought of as off limits to the gospel? Have you censored yourself in sharing the good news with certain people? You know, certainly Jonah thinks these Ninevites, forget them. But I've done that with people. And who are you doing that with people? So be in awe of God, be humble about your sin, be speaking about God's mercy. What would you add to that? Yeah, I really, I really like that. I feel like you captured the, the um, response of the reader with being in awe of God, but then there's two realities with Jonah and Nineveh. Um, honestly, I wouldn't, uh, what I have doesn't add much. It's just framed a little bit differently. Urgent repentance and urgent proclamation. So um, urgent repentance, both for believers and non-believers. So you see Jonah even repenting. And again, here he's turning and he's, he's obeying the Lord. 
Um, and, you know, repentance isn't just a one-time thing. There's, there's repentance of, of our sins for salvation, but we're sinners. You know, we, we screw up. We are judgmental and hypocritical and self-righteous. Uh, and God is still gracious to, to us, you know, as, as sinners. So it's calls for urgent repentance for those of us who believe. But I also think that this is a huge call to urgent repentance for those who have never been saved. And I think, you know, in a, in a room of about 50 people, there's a good chance that there's someone here who hasn't, hasn't responded in the same way that Nineveh has. Um, and, you know, I was joking a little bit about the, the burlap sacks uh, earlier, but I think authentic repentance is recognizing, man, my sin is, is evil. Like my sin deserves God's wrath. Um, and justice will come to every sinner, but God gives a way out. So even just if anyone's here who hasn't experienced that or like that is just, that sounds crazy. Um, it's, it's nothing to be taken lightly. And we want to be a place here where we can talk about that. So um, yeah, there's justice and mercy and a calls for urgent repentance so that we can be saved. And the second thing is you, I think you did a good job summarizing this, but urgent proclamation. Um, to all nations, this full message of justice and mercy. But I think what this challenges me with is I feel like I have an underlying assumption that God's word isn't going to do what God's word will do, if that makes sense. Like these people respond immediately. These people repent. The, the most surprising audience ever and they repent, like they, God saves them. And I feel like it's easy for me to assume that people aren't going to respond positively. Like, I just assume people are gonna reject, I'm gonna get, you know, uh, shoved aside or persecution or whatever. Um, but I think this actually holds out this promise that if we preach God's word, people will be saved. They will believe God even if we preach a crappy sermon or we do a bad job doing it, whether it's seven words or, you know, we're, we're rambling and babbling like I often do. Um, yeah. God is going to save people through the power of his word and his spirit. So this really challenges my assumptions and also I think calls us all to urgent proclamation. So nice. Well, that was about 30 minutes. We, I think we stuck to our time frame. Um, Sarah, could you, could you pray? And then for the rest of you guys, we're going to break up into small groups and I'll give you a little bit more direction after that. But I hope this time was, was helpful. Uh, Sarah, I really loved your thoughts. This is really helpful for me to, to study it with you. So why don't you close us in prayer and then I'll give some small group questions. Yeah. Uh, Father, I do thank you for this book. Um, and I, I thank you for your character, Lord. You are, are so different from, from me and from many of us. Um, it is so surprising, your mercy. Um, it is so sweet. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't take it for granted. And I pray that we would really see the urgency that there are so many around the world that are just pursuing the wrong things, pursuing evil and death, and, and it's not going to end well for them. Um, so Lord, I pray that, that rather than make us back away from those people, that we would actually move forward in love um, and just urgently preach your message with confidence that 
that you're already at work. You were clearly already working ahead in the Ninevites such that when they heard Jonah's message, they recognized it came from you. So Lord, I pray that um, for everybody who's here tonight, that there would be people um, that they share the gospel with that maybe they haven't before. And Lord, I pray that you're, you would be working in those people's hearts even already so that when they have the conversation, Lord, it's just so evident that you're already there. Uh, Lord, I thank you for um, just the, the promise that you will build your kingdom here and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Lord, that you will save people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Uh, Lord, I thank you for um, just this, this, this wonderful book. And uh, Lord, I pray that it would encourage and challenge us and, and seek us, seek just to wrestle with you, but also to, um, to join in your mission even more wholeheartedly. I pray these things in your name. Amen.